Welcome to the Aux Podcast, audio and audio, with your host, me, Will, Will Flom. This podcast is very sophisticated, very erudite, very erudite, very important. The good thing about listening to an audio file of any kind is somebody talking, either reading verbatim or sort of ad-libbing and speaking extemporaneously, is that you can engage in any kind of routine tasks such as driving or doing the dishes and let your mind go elsewhere. And I do that frequently. While I'm doing that, I have thoughts which I would like to respond to the speaker and I have no medium to do it. Uh, except for this podcast, and that's what I'm going to do. Let's get into the first episode of my new format of Aux, podcast audio on audio. Today, we are going to consider the philosophical principle of generosity, not the actual act of being generous, but rather that in a productive dialogue, a good technique for achieving some sort of progress is to be able to reiterate the opponent's point of view or to be able to restate what they their position is in the best possible way you don't want to give a straw man or weak case and 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 present your opposing view to that weak case you want to help the uh, opponent if necessary to give the best case so that your rebuttal is ironclad and 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 tight and to look at this principle of productive dialogue, we are going to consider podcasts. Oh, no podcast today. Sorry. Next time. We're going to look at a couple of audiobooks and lectures. And the issues that we're going to look at are the Bengal famine of 1943-1944 and the single-term Kulak. Okay? So we're going to take a little overview of how these came up in various audio files, which are books and lectures, and how these two issues can be examined in a productive dialogue versus in a sort of ignoring the opposition as the, and, and just and, and presenting your side without even acknowledging that there is another side. So that's what this is about. And shall we have the roll call for today? Your lecture is Hayden J. Bellanoit. Dr. Bellanoit is an associate professor of history at the U.S. Naval Academy. A People's History of the Russian Revolution, written by Neil Faulkner. The lecturer is Professor Patrick N. Allen, Goodrich C. White Professor of History at Emory University. Recorded Books presents an unabridged recording of Churchill by Paul Johnson, narrated by Simon Preble. Penguin presents Churchill, Walking with Destiny by Andrew Roberts, read by Stephen Thorne. Audible Inc. presents Churchill's Secret War, The British Empire and the Ravaging of India During World War II, written by Madhushri Mukherjee, narrated by James Adams. The Theft of India, The European Conquest of India, 1498-1765, authored by Roy Moxham. Narrated by Elvis Matthias. Books on Tape presents Winston Churchill by John Keegan. Read by Richard Matthews. The Audio Partners Publishing Corporation is pleased to present Roosevelt and Churchill, Men of Secrets by David Stafford. Read by Richard F. McGonagall. 
This is complete and unabridged. This is Audible. Penguin presents Inglorious Empire What the British Did to India. Written and read by Shashi Tarur. And don't worry if you missed any of that. Obviously, I'm going to have some links, direct links to those files and, and more information on the sources. Now, I want to take a look at the simpler of the two cases, which is simply the word kulak. And here is how Neil Ferguson, who is the author of A People's History of the Russian Revolution, kind of casually referred to kulak, which sparked this theme that we're going to discuss today. It hastened the development of capitalist farming, widening the division in the villages between a minority of rich peasants, kulaks, and the rest. What he's done here is he's just assumed that there is a class called kulak. Now, I'm not an expert on the Russian Revolution. I mean, I haven't studied it professionally, and I haven't written a book about the Russian Revolution. But I happen to be aware that the whole question of whether kulaks exist or not is something that's up for debate. And the fact that this book, um, Neil Faulkner, I said Ferguson, excuse me, Neil Faulkner's um, book fails to at least engage with the issue of whether the kulaks were a real category or invented as propaganda to justify uh, collectivization or in the process of collectivization to rationalize the failure of collectivization, that's an open question, and it needs to be, you have to argue back. So the, the premise of a people's history of the Russian Revolution sounded good. Here's how um, Neil Faulkner uh, sort of premised his book. While it lasted, the Russian people stormed the heavens, as Marx described the experience of the Paris Commune in 1871, and showed the world what was possible when you did so. The Russian Revolution revealed the enormous potential for social transformation. I cannot claim originality because Trotsky has been my guide throughout. So at the risk of mischaracterizing what Neil Faulkner's up to, this is a leftist book um, that is inspired by the Russian Revolution. Uh, to summarize something of his point of view, he's inspired himself and he thinks the climate change movement and other social movements of this era have a lot to learn from the revolution in a positive way. He's fairly positive about Lenin and not so much about Stalin, which isn't surprising given that his primary source is Trotsky. So that's actually fine. I don't have a problem with that point of view and I was interested in it and I was anxious to read the book until I heard that Kulak comment. And um, as you'll see in this podcast, this is not going to be a left-right thing. So if you're jumping to conclusions, jump back, slow down, because we're going to look at left and right. I'm, I'm not talking about the dynamics of left and right. I'm talking about how I look for a convincing argument. If you just blow past the argument about whether Kulaks exist or not, I'm going to be skeptical of everything in the book. Um, just by dropping that one word, I uh, was uh, concerned about Neil Faulkner's objectivity. Not objectivity. I'm not looking for objectivity. I'm looking for generosity by engaging with the issues of the other side when they're substantial and um, giving them, if they didn't make as good a case as they should have, you help them out because you don't want to respond to a weak case. You want to respond to the, 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 the most comprehensive case that the opposition can can muster so that it'll never be refuted on your side uh, with the available information at the time. So why 
would there be such a thing as a, a debate about whether kulaks is a real category or not? Well, I just happened to have come across this. The end of 1929, he announced a campaign on two fronts. First, he announced in December of 29 to eliminate, as he put it, eliminate kulaks as a class. Actually, the word literally was to liquidate kulaks as a class. And second, within a few months, uh, a few weeks, in January of 1930, total and rapid collectivization of all peasants uh, was decreed. Now, this excerpt is about Stalin, so I'm not sure Neil Faulkner would disagree because he sees Stalin as a major turn in the context of the Russian Revolution, although one of the biographies that um, I will link in the, um, on the webpage associated with this podcast it makes a very good case that there was nothing particularly... Um, extreme in the sense of Stalin's personality or anything else that he was basically he's his he, he grew out of the party context so well never mind that that's a little bit of a digression and I said digressions would be later that was the kind of general history at least the perspective that I think Neil Faulkner was objecting to which is treating the um, whole Russian revolution as leading up to the gulag or something like that but specifically about kulaks and whether it's a propaganda term or a legitimate class, um, this is more specific. The wealthiest peasants were called in the Russian slang of the day, kulaks. Kulak, incidentally, means fist. And I don't know, maybe, maybe it's because in popular culture it was thought that kulaks were heavy-fisted types that beat down their, their neighbors, and uh, this pejorative term that was assigned to the wealthier peasants was appropriated by the party. I, I really don't know in detail the history of the term, but it was a pejorative, uh, a nasty thing to be called a kulak. So here, uh, Gary Homburg is the name of the professor giving a lecture on uh, the teaching company or the great courses, um, is saying that the term kulak must have existed. It's like you jerk, you're a kulak, what, look at this kulak over here, look, this guy, who, who, who does this kulak think he is, I'm gonna, I swear to God, I'm gonna hurt this kulak, this kulak doesn't pay me my money, I'm going to take his horse, and, you know, I don't know, so something like that, it existed, sort of, it must have, prior to uh, the Bolsheviks, before Stalin, uh, using that as a propaganda term. Who were these kulaks? Well, this is a very complicated question. At one level, it's simple. Kulaks are whoever the party says are kulaks. So there's a formal definition. Anyone who hires labor for 80 days a year and anyone who has a certain yearly income in ruble is ipso facto a kulak. About 2% of the population at one point was statistically declared to be Kulak. Now, that's the simple answer. The reality in the peasant village is a little bit different. And here we have to talk about something that existed in Russia that I haven't explained up to this point for want of time to do it, and that is the peasant commune. Remember, the peasant commune consists of all of the household heads of a given village. Usually, 
there were 50 to 100 people that would constitute uh, the heads of household in a given village and would have voting power in the commune. Now, most of these heads of household uh, were males because males were thought to be the head of the family, although if uh, the male head of household had died, a woman could represent her family as a head of household and vote in the communal assembly. The elite people in the commune tended to be people that were older, that is 40-ish, because that was quite old in the Russian village context, life expectancy wasn't that long. They tended to be 40-ish or so. And the younger people in uh, a given household might be 20-ish. And they might not even be represented as heads of households. Or if they were, they had just split off from their uh, father's house to form their own communal unit. Now, here we come to the definitional question. Who are kulaks? In this context, the people who are most prosperous in terms of owning the most animals and tools are people who are 40 or so. If you look at those very same people when they were 20, they might have had nothing, no tools and no draft animals. They had to work in order to obtain those things. And of course, uh, those people's children, these supposedly wealthy peasants, I mean, they were going to leave the house eventually, if they were female, and marry into some other family, or set up, if they were male, their own, their own household. Actually, therefore, in the context of the Russian village, the inequality that existed was simply a generational inequality. That was the inequality. So um, Hamburg, who is apparently not a super uh, enthusiast of the Bolsheviks, as opposed to Faulkner, who uh, finds inspiration in the Bolshevik Revolution or in the Russian Revolution, um, and is not overly... Uh, con whose concentration is not on the the failures of the Bolsheviks, um, uh, disagree, obviously, on their point of view. And Hamburg is arguing that just because the term kulak existed as a folk term or as a common usage does not mean it's a social class. It could just be a generic insult that was commonly used, but that doesn't mean that it's a class that go passes down any kind of wealth or inheritance from generation to generation, and that the Bolsheviks um, were uh, manipulating the term. Now I have a whole bunch of digressions I could go off on on a couple of really interesting biographies um, that um, I would like to, but that would be take away from the key points of my argument, and I would never get to my second argument. So, or I would never get to the second part of this argument, where we would flip the script and kind of look at the right-wing um, failure to address the opponent's point of view. So here is a left-wing uh, author who I feel has dropped the ball by 
simply accepting the existence of kulaks. He doesn't have to agree with Hamburg, um, that we that or whoever it was that Hamburg is getting his uh, his information from. I'm not sure that's original research of his. It probably isn't because he says he doesn't know the the, the, the preface. I'm not sure that's Hamburg's original research about the origin of the word kulak and how it was used, but. Um, it's worth refuting. It's not that it's objectively true, because I'm not in a position to say, but the fact that Faulkner didn't even engage with the issue and accepted the issue, that, accepted, that kulaks existed in their social class, I'm not, not impressed with that. All right, so that's it for the kulak part of this story. The next part of the podcast is going to be about Winston Churchill. And that the musical interlude has nothing to do with the topic should be fairly obvious. Like you obviously stupid. Back to the erudite narrative. And now we're going to look at Winston Churchill and the famine in Bengal in 1942 and 1943. And the reason is not because there's a connection between Stalin and Churchill, which there obviously is, or even between the... Bolshevik Revolution or the Communists and the Capitalists, which there is, um, all that is kind of, uh, will, is worth discussing and I will, but I'm going to talk about the Bengal famine because of the same point of not engaging with the other side. So let's just take a little sample of a couple of books. We're going to head over to India. In fact, the recurrent famines stand in stern judgment over Britain's failure to assure Indian welfare. As late as 1943 to 44, during the Second World War, there was a terrible famine in Bengal when perhaps as many as three million Bengalis died of starvation. The argument about famine comes up in a bunch of sources that I've referenced here at the beginning of the podcast and also will have links. Um, the, the argument that the uh, fact that India is unified may be related to British colonialism is subsequently... Um, countered by the prevalence of famine. And in several sources, they would explain that, of course, famine was common um, before the British, it was maybe 1760s, um, the British dominance of India, um, and it, as it was in Europe. Um, and that, as in Europe, famines in India were local and did not usually tend to become uh, titanic province-wide or region-wide disasters because, as in Europe, some people had money, could buy uh, food that was imported from other regions where the harvest wasn't as bad. Uh, other people could move. And that British colonialism um, had a system of taxation that extracted more currency out of the rural population. Um, there's several sources that make this argument. And um, by encouraging... Um, export crops of uh, indigo and you know cash crops rather than subsistence crops um, not encouraging mandating that that caused a um, more vulnerability and also restriction of movement so the famines under the British were far more intense than they had been under the Mughal Empire in the north of India and that um, particularly in Bengal by pushing uh, the rice um, Pushing uh, the, the the making the uh, population dependent on rice exported from Burma now Myanmar was 
uh, critical in setting the stage for subsequent famines like the one in 43-44. So I think I got the years slightly wrong at the beginning there. Uh, World War II. Um, So uh, that is uh, that there's never been a famine since the British left and there was no history of excessive famines before the British came. So famine according to the uh, critics of the uh, British Empire is a British imperial um, development and not intrinsic to India. Um, so, and that seems to be the case with the uh, Bengal famine during World War II. But let's uh, go back, uh, let's or zoom in a little bit to that period. Now, in late 1942, this was the largest all India uprising since 1857. It was led by provincial and local level Congress party members rather than the high command. And this was because Gandhi, Nehru, and others were in jail. The Congress knew that the reins on the masses had to be loosened, given the context of war, plus coupled with, as they saw it, sheer British stubbornness. Now, what happens if you give the discontented masses free reign? Well, of course, things get out of control. The Quit India movement quickly descended into violence. In fact, it turned revolutionary. The British lost control over parts of Bihar, eastern and northern India, Bengal, and areas outside of Bombay. Here, it was very clear that Gandhi's nuanced ideas of ahimsa, nonviolence, had been jettisoned in the hope of getting the British out. Yet one province remained largely calm, the Punjab. The simmering communal conflict between Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs really made fighting the Raj less important. Plus, the grave remittances by Punjabi soldiers that were sent back to the Punjab largely mollified anti-British nationalism. Effectively, soldiers' paychecks sent back home largely kept the Punjab quiet. So some of the key elements about the famine in Bengal are that the harvest in the Punjab was fine and that the British were reluctant to alienate farmers in the Punjab who disproportionately served in the British Army. Another point is that Japan had invaded Burma and rice exports were cut off. That the policy of uh, crop substitution had created the situation where Bengal was dependent on the rice imports. Um, The the Americans had plenty of shipping after um, they entered the war and volunteered shipping to move grain to Bengal. There were stocks of grain uh, in the Middle East that ended up not being needed available to ship to Bengal, and that the person most responsible for preventing those shipments was Winston Churchill, who specifically and personally stopped the um, or interfered with the American merchant marine offer to ship grain, who was more than anyone um, uh, responsible for preventing the Bengal, Bengalis from uh, for preventing shipments from Punjab going to Bengal. These are, these are arguments made in the various sources. Um, and that he did this because he hated Indians and he was a racist. So the argument is out there that more than any single individual, the, the Bengal famine of two to three million people was caused by the British policies. The British could have alleviated the famine without um, sacrificing the war effort. Um, 
weather was a minor factor and would not have contributed, would not have caused mass starvation um, without the logistical decision making that went on at the highest level, that there were figures within the British um, structure who were anxious and willing um, and, uh, and encouraging the uh, government to move grain and Winston Churchill interfered personally at many points to prevent grain from going to Bengal and that the anti-British activism that was particularly um, prevalent in Bengal was one of the reasons he was punishing Bengal for their political activism. Now, I'm not saying that's totally true, although I have several sources, which I've cited here, which make that roughly that argument. Um, but now, if you're a Churchill, um, if you love Churchill, <laughs> and you want to vindicate him and say he's not guilty of personally being largely or bearing more responsibility than any other individual, or not completely his own, um, then you would at least want to engage with some of these facts or some of these uh, these these uh, points that whether you disagree with them if you don't believe they're true you're going to have to address them all the existence of the system of export agriculture from Bengal and and the turning away from subsistence and depending on rice imports um, that is a decision making process that is capitalist so I'm bringing this that up because as we go into the um, Stalin and the kulaks and tie those two together, um, we're going to say that a system and an individual are responsible for a famine. That's true with Stalin and it's true with Churchill. Different system, different individual, same result, which is a famine. And if we look at the body count of, the, of Stalin, it's famine that um, is where you're going to get the, the numbers. But there's another system and another famine, and another individual with a lot of power. So I'm contrasting those two, but I'm also going to now take a moment and look at the, hey, the more, the, 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 the traditional Churchill as hero hagiography. Hey, I'm having trouble pronouncing that, you know, a, a hagiography. <laughs> hagiography? You know, that he's a saint. Well, in the various sources, which I'm going to, you know, we're going to go listen to a little snippet here and there uh, that are pro-Churchill. Um, there was only one that mentioned the famine at all. And in that source, it attributed the whole problem to weather. The monsoon rains were insufficient. Um, without addressing any of those other issues that I just mentioned about the rice from Burma, about the previous existing um, policy of cash crops over subsistence crops, of the availability of shipping, of the stocks of grain in the Middle East, of the other British officials who, in a series of memos, governor of Bengal, were insisting that there was a crisis that needed to be addressed, etc. So um, you can argue against that, but to ignore it seems like you're not looking <laughs> for the truth. So um, in most of the works, there is no way I can get a, 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 a counter-argument on the Bengal family because it's simply not mentioned. Um, the one mention of this issue with the monsoon rains, I was looking for that quote, and I looked through a ton of Churchill biographies, some of which I listened to in total, um, and some of which I 
none of them are the right biography, I don't think. I'm going to list all the biography. And, you know, it's harder with an audio than with a book. I can't flip through the pages. I can't do a text search for the term monsoon rains. So it's been a little tricky to find the exact quote. But let's see what I got. To be blamed for the dreadful failure and loss of life in the Dardanelles was a terrible burden to carry. Churchill responded by fighting on the Western Front in great discomfort and danger and then by doing a magnificent job at the Ministry of Munitions. And in this, of one of the most laudatory biographies, which I did not, I was not able to listen to the whole thing, because I couldn't take it, um, but um, here he's, you know, it's wrapping up, it's in the conclusion where he looks back on his failures, the Dardanelles, the loss of British, or mostly, you know, Australian um, life in Gallipoli, you know, it causes him anguish and pain, no mention of the famine. In a sense, his whole career was an exercise in how courage can be displayed, reinforced, guarded and doled out carefully, heightened and concentrated, conveyed to others. In the two books that I cite in the references, um, one is Churchill and Gandhi, which was excellent, and the other is Churchill and Roosevelt, which was also good. Um, one of the points, um, at one point... Um, there's a quote from Roosevelt where he says, the one thing you can never talk about with Churchill is India. Just never say India, because <laughs> he'll lose it. And could it be that Churchill was so racist, um, Babu is a term they would use for um, educated Hindus, that the famine didn't even cross his mind, or the assumption that famines were just an Indian thing, what can you do? Um, was so ingrained, including in this biographer, that it just didn't come up. The next day, when the imposition of the colour bar by the American army on British restaurants was discussed in the cabinet, Lord Cranbourne said that one of his black officials in the colonial office could no longer go to a restaurant because American officers had imposed a whites-only policy there. That's all right, Churchill said. If he takes a banjo with him, they'll think he's one of the band. Okay, casual racist joke by a guy in the 1940s, you know. Okay, he has a banjo. Um, but uh, the, um, he did the right thing on the color bar that the, the biography will go on to say, and he insisted that in England we don't have that. Um, so... There's another interesting point where Churchill kind of was on the right side, definitely was. Uh, maybe I'll have time to bring that up in the digression, but let's check out some more Churchill biographies. He was later privately to say of the highly egotistical Monty, in defeat, unbeatable, in victory, unbearable. Nope, that has nothing to do with the Bengal famine. Let's keep going. He then added an unambiguous reference to the Far East and India. We have not entered this war for profit or expansion, but only for honour, and to do our duty in defending the right. Let me, however, make this clear, in case there should be any mistake about it in any quarter. We mean to hold our own. I have not become the King's first minister in order to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. For that task, if ever it were prescribed, Someone else would have to be found. There were plenty of people in the British establishment who were on record saying Churchill is some kind of Victorian Neanderthal clinging to the empire when everybody else could read the writing on the wall. And while he was unable to save the empire, he was able to prevent relief from reaching Bengal. It was a clear message, not just to the Japanese and the Indian National Congress, 
but also to the Americans that Churchill did not believe the Empire's days were numbered. Indeed, he saw the wars being fought as much for the Empire as for Britain, and the Empire had responded magnificently, providing men, money and material in huge amounts, without being called upon. In return, Britain helped protect India from a Japanese invasion which, had it been as murderous as Japan's occupation of the Philippines, would have left 50 million Indians dead. And that's not a direct uh, counter to the argument about the Bengal famine, but at least it's an argument that if not for the British in India, the Japanese would have occupied India and that would have been worse although the Japanese had no trouble getting the British out of Singapore, and I'm not sure that they didn't invade India because the British were there, but because it was a lot to swallow. But at least it's an argument. I'm not sure how good it is, but it's an argument. And President Franklin Roosevelt used this to try to pressure Churchill and the British to offer more concessions to Congress in exchange for further support during the war. And Roosevelt, unlike almost any American president I can think of, seemed to understand colonialism, at least from these sources that I will link in somewhere associated with this podcast. But the Congress wanted these guarantees, so the talks failed. In fact, we now know in hindsight that Churchill actually wanted them to fail, as he saw it, to get the Yanks off his back. And it worked. I mean, the Americans, uh, Roosevelt particularly individually, did not push too hard on India because they had so many other things going on, wartime and all that. But um, that's a theme that comes up in several books of the tension between the Americans and the British over the British Empire. Remember, the previous campaigns in the 1920s and the 1930s saw Congress try to master their control of the masses. This time, though, they gave it up. Looking through these audio files to find little quotes that I remember is a little slow. Um, um, it's As I was explaining, you can't do a word search, or at least I don't know how to do it. And I also don't know which file to look in because there's so many sources. I do remember graphic descriptions of the Bengal famine and of the rather intense resistance to British colonialism prior to the famine. And there is something of a parallel with Churchill and Bengal versus Stalin and Ukraine after World War II. Right after uh, the end of the war, there was a famine in Ukraine when Stalin was very clearly using food as a weapon against regions that were particularly resistant to re-Sovietization after the war. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of... there's. Clearly a, an idea here that is going in this podcast, that if you're going to blame Stalinism's death toll on communism for starvation, which is where you're going to find most of the, the deaths, then you have to blame the British Empire and capitalism for the also high number of deaths in India in the Bengal famine. And you can... Um, counter that or you can disagree with me but you can't or disagree with that that position which isn't mine particularly but you can't just ignore it um, if you want to have a productive discussion um, just as to um, pretend that the Kulak argument was legitimate 
that there were such a thing as kulaks. And that was a serious um, impediment to the success of collectivization just seems not likely to be the case, that there was more going on with the use of the, the idea. And if collectivization was a bad policy, so was uh, substituting subsistence crops for export crops in Bengal. There are two sets of policies that pre-existed the individuals, um, Stalin and Churchill, which uh, makes more diffuse the individual culpability, perhaps, but not a, not a lot. Because in the context of those policies and bad policies, um, both Stalin and Churchill were the prime movers uh, to to increase the negative repercussions of the policies. So this is some particularly bad policy making by the British Empire and some particularly bad policy making by the Bolshevik government. Um, so that's a parallel. Stalin proclaimed a new theory, which he made sure was borne out. The farther socialist construction progressed, the more heated the class war would become as the enemies of socialism intensified their resistance. They would also, he warned ominously, exert influence over the party. Was this that really good biography I heard of Stalin? I kind of don't know. You know, I could do a thing on this audio on audio where I just recommend things to listen to, and I need to get my links correct so I don't recommend the wrong book. Because I listened to a fantastic biography of Stalin, covering his youth, his rise to the party, the whole thing. And not because Stalin is so fascinating, but the era. You know, you can see the era. So I would like to add that to this audio-on-audio audio genre that I'm doing here in this podcast. And I also want to do podcasts on podcasts. Today we had uh, some lectures and some audiobooks and no podcasts, but that'll change. And I wanted to make a specific point about taking an argument from the other side and well several points to to close i'm closing this out <laughs> after 37 minutes one is that if you don't agree with the other side you can't just ignore what they said you can't mischaracterize it and uh this argument would be slightly stronger if i found all of the quotes in all the churchill biographies but you get a flavor of the mainstream churchill biographies that are more uh uh-oh saint like uh, hey, I've only read the word. I've never actually heard it. And this is what I'm trying hey, to geography? say. Yeah, this is what I'm trying to say is that you stupid. How's that? <laughs> so that kind of um, biography of, of Stalin. Um, Churchill. And then we had the hagiography of Lenin, so to speak, where the uh, Kulak uh, no, uh, nomenclature was not... Um, considered as a possible red herring um, by the party to justify their bad policies. So um, the same principle, different sides, and I uh, presented them both. I made my point. I do believe I have made my point uh, very well. <laughs> For somebody.
me who's stupid, I guess so. <laughs> Which is exactly the point, is that it's not that I made it well. I was trying to say that I would, you have to engage. You know, if I was going to write a biography of Churchill, I would have to engage on this issue of the famine. And instead of doing that, you're just going to run your mouth on this here podcast, apparently. And if I wanted to be positive about Churchill, or include the good and the bad, I'm going to have to discuss it. Now, this, uh, the better biography, which I'm not sure I referenced here correctly. Um, no, that was the Gandhi and um, the book on Gandhi and um, Churchill is great. And Gandhi is way more complex than you think. And the book is not partisan against either. It's a great one. Um, and in that one, there's some, some moments when I was like, Churchill isn't too bad. Like on uh, Amritsa and the massacre. He's, he was around for so long. He was World War, World War I, World War II. He's always there. But, um, uh, you know, I'm not going to condemn him every step of the way, but if you are primarily responsible for the starvation of three million people, that's pretty bad. And, it, of course, you know, you're going to say, well, what about the other guys, the Hitler and the Japanese were worse, which we heard that argument. You know, if the Allies, the United States and Britain are the good guys, it's only because they're up against the worst possible government that ever existed, which is Nazi Germany. And I guess this is the part of the podcast where you just run your mouth and go off and digress and go off the topic, apparently. So, in conclusion, to make a solid argument, you should not mischaracterize or ignore the opponent's argument, but engage with them. And we have also, because the two case cases which we've considered are related in terms of time, we've considered the impact of famine and bad policy making in that period, both in a capitalist and a communist context, in order to consider the individual culpability of two leaders and to compare and contrast those, at least that's implicit in this podcast. So, you know, if you're going to condemn communism for famines, you have to condemn capitalism for other famines. And that would be another point that is relevant to these two cases. So there's two points, substantial points in this podcast. My first in this format of audio on audio. And I appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we'll see you next time. And maybe next time you won't have the vacuum cleaner running in the background all the time and stuff like that. Thus concludes the Aux podcast, audio on audio. Thank you for listening.